0: Hi, I'm Patricia Grubarek.
1: And I'm Katina Sawyer, and welcome to the Worker Being Podcast.
0: Today, we have Katina sharing a very exciting article. Do you want to give us a little sneak peek?
1: Yes. So today, I'm actually sharing an article that I um, co-wrote with uh, some colleagues, um, and it's about oppositional courage and the value of enacting courageous behaviors to stand up for what is
0: right at work. That sounds super interesting. And I love that you're doing your own article. I already told you this before we even started when you said it. I was like, yes, your own article. I get very excited about it because I think, um, well, one, you know, all the ins and outs. And two, I love highlighting all the great work you're doing as a researcher. Thank you. Yeah, this paper was... uh real
1: real long journey to get published so i'm happy to finally look at it
0: (laughs) in print that's awesome i feel like wasn't the last one we talked about um your dissertation i think the last time we talked about your article was probably yeah
1: i think that's the i think that's the last one that we did and um yeah so that's been a while so um Mm. yeah happy to talk about this one uh it was a long time in progress and happy to finally see it out so yeah
0: we'll another talk about that. It'll long be fun. labor of love
1: yes yes <laughs> of course <laughs> but uh what's going on with you i know that you uh had
0: some uh new vehicle news yes so we just bought a car this weekend um we got our toyota rav4 hybrid i'm super Ooh. excited about the hybrid part environment Uh, yeah yeah it's actually kind of fun because when you drive it you like it tells you are you using are you being eco-friendly are you charging the battery are you going on gas alone because you're accelerating too much like slow down speed demon um (laughs) so it tells you all of that and at the end when you park and you turn off the car it uh like report spits out and it basically tells you like your score And then tells you like what you could have done to be a more eco-friendly driver the next time. That's cool. Yeah. So it's kind of a game and you know how much I like getting good grades. So (laughs) (laughs) it's going to be interesting. I'm going to be trying to beat my score every time.
1: (laughs) Well, that's a, that's a good, I mean, I think that's right though. Like, you know, I feel like if you want people to do stuff, then you need to like find a way to incentivize them to like give points or whatever like it works with companies too like Mm -hmm. you know scorecards and things like that so um so I think it makes sense give you a little report makes you want to do better
0: yeah yeah so that's that's fun and it's I mean it's gorgeous it's like um I don't know it just feels so fancy and maybe uh Maybe Toyotas aren't considered fancy, but I feel like this car is fancy, and it's got like all the toys inside of it, and it's so pretty, and and it's an Yay. SUV, which I kind of like that because I feel like in my other car I just felt very short, and like I feel like nobody yeah. saw me, but people are gonna <laughs> see me now. You were <laughs> I'm <invisible>. there. <laughs> you were invisible driving in the road. Yeah, you know, I know what
1: you mean. My car was a like a two door um, Honda Civic that I had before this SUV, and um. I also felt kind of just like tiny and then um, it was just really, really, well, you don't have this problem in California, but like it was really, really bad in any kind of weather mm. like snow, rain, blah, blah. I was like sliding everywhere like and I hate that feeling of just like, oh, no, my car is moving on un- uh, like aligned with what I'm telling it to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so the SUV, I feel like I have four wheel drive. I feel a lot better. I'm like higher up. I can see more stuff. Short
0: people really have a hard time driving cars. I got (laughs) to say. Yeah. I do like that you can like raise the seat up too. Cause yes, that's like a big deal. Like in a bigger car. Um, yeah. You know, I'm on the shorter side as well. And, well, I'm, I'm definitely short. I'm below average, but you're even shorter than me. That's the res- yes, only reason why I I'm am. being nicer to myself yes. because you're even shorter. <laughs> that is true. Um, but like, it's nice that you can like pick the seat up. So like even in a big car, you can actually still be kind of taller even within the car. So yeah. I'm like,
1: woohoo, I'm so tall. The first car I had was a regular car, but it was so good for short people because it sat really high. Mm. And so I never like felt like that. And then when I got this Honda Civic, it was like I was like in a pit. It was kind of mm-hmm. like a, I mean, it was not like a race car. It's a Honda Civic, but because it was like a coupe, <laughs> yeah. it sat sportier. Low. And so I didn't like that. Like, I felt like I could never see. Like, I was like, I never, like, hit, like, anything major. But, like, curbs and stuff, sometimes I would turn and, like, hop the curb. And I'm like, what the hell? But it was because I couldn't see, like, where the mm-hmm. curb was. Like, I just literally couldn't see it. So now I feel like I can see so much more stuff. And I feel a lot better being up higher. And I'm, like, such a – I look, like, such a nerd because you I, like, put the seat <laughs> all the way up and put it, like, really close to the wheel. Like, I sit super close to the wheel and super <gasps> yes. high up, like, the most <laughs> – the most close and high that I can go to the wheel, I do because I just feel the most comfortable that way.
0: I'm not gonna lie. When I saw you drive that car and get so close to the wheel, I was you. I mean, you heard me. I told you <laughs> yes. I was like, "What? You are way too what close." What are you doing? <laughs> no, I it love is it. really, really funny how close you sit to the wheel. But I love. Sitting I do close bring mine wheel. up very high as well. Um, so I'm with you on that. I get a little bit further from the wheel. I'm not like quite as on top of it as you are. But um, I love it. But, I mean, it is it is nice to be taller. One time I had oh, to yes. rent a, like when my card was in the shop, I had to get a, uh, what was it? They gave me like a Dodge. Whoa, what's like the sporty Dodge car? That's like really Oh, a short. Charger? Yes. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I couldn't see anything anything in that car. I was so yes. short. I couldn't see anything. And it's humongous. Like it is a boat. I feel like you're driving a boat because it's super <laughs> big, but it's just like a short car, but it's a it's like it takes up a lot of space. So, I had the hardest time parking that car. I was like, "I cannot. No. I like, oh my gosh. I was so mad. And I was like, can we is there any other car I could I rent for this week?" And they're like, "Nope, that's it." And I was like, "Cool." I mean, Great. I might crash it because it's really wide Sounds and I can't awesome. see any of it, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> but sure, I'll take it. <laughs> I guess that's what's going to have to happen. Well, I needed to. I didn't have a car otherwise. Yeah. So, it was I was stuck driving a Charger bust, a car that I could not really navigate very well. So, that yeah, was no not fun. fun. But this new car is tall enough that I even though it is bigger than my Focus, it is a car that I can actually navigate because it's not so big and I'm not so short that I I used to date a guy who was obsessed
1: with Dodge Chargers and he would always talk about Dodge Chargers and how
0: all he wanted was a Dodge
1: Charger and I don't know why he was just obsessed with it like that was just like his thing and he would always be like I'm gonna get a Dodge Charger I'm gonna get a Dodge Charger like he would constantly (laughs) be talking about Dodge Charger so when you were just talking about I was having like flashbacks of like (laughs) Having to listen for so long about how great Dodge Chargers were for no reason. Well, you would
0: hate it because you would be like just sunken in and you far away from the steering wheel and really low and not being able to see anything. It was terrible for me. I think you have to be a a little bit taller, probably over 5'5 at least. Yeah.
1: As you can tell, uh, this podcast is sponsored by Dodge Charger.
0: (laughs) (laughs) My have has been crapping on the Dodge Charger this entire time. Sorry for anyone that loves it and has it, but it is not meant this for. Podcast it. brought to you by Dodge. <laughs> yeah. It's not meant for uh, anybody below five and well, five, five, five three. So five three and down, I think, is probably bad. Yeah. Um, don't do it. Yeah. But. Do not do it. Anyways. All right. Enough about the cars. Um. Well, I'm happy you got a car. Yeah. I, I'm glad. It's going to be nice to have. Exciting. Nice to have. Anything that you want to bring up that happened to you? Anything interesting, exciting? I mean... um, Nothing
1: interesting or exciting. I'm not teaching this semester, so while everybody deals with the whole, like, are they going to be... How are they going to put all their classes online and... All that kind of stuff. Uh, GW's officially decided that they are going to be online for the semester instead of in person, um, which I think is a good move. But um, it's, you know, everybody's got to move all their stuff online now. But luckily, I am on research semester, so I don't have to do any of that. So I feel badly for my colleagues that are kind of scrambling at the last minute to switch everything around when they thought they were going to be on campus and then found out that they're going to be online. Um, But it's probably a better move considering the fact that, like, I saw today – um unc chapel hill has been open for like a week and they already had to close because there's too many cases of covid (gasps) oh no
0: yeah Yeah. so i'm feeling like it's
1: just yeah i think a lot of universities are gonna i mean what like everybody's living in like you know rooms that are the size of like you know a shoebox. yeah and you know they're going to parties they're doing whatever like they're not gonna they're you know i i have very little faith that college students are going to effectively distance in the way that they should be so um i think it probably makes sense to get ahead of it and just say that's it um but i am happy that i don't have to worry about um uh doing all of that and i can just keep hiding in my home and doing what (laughs) i've been doing all summer so
0: that i'm happy about Good, 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 good. Yes. Well, I'm glad that you don't have to do that. And yes, um, yeah, so good times. Research semester is great. And speaking of yes. your research, yes, tell us about your article.
1: OK, sounds good. So our article is called Because You're Worth the Risks, Acts of Oppositional Courage as Symbolic Messages of Relational Value to Transgender Employees. And it was just published in the Journal of Applied Psychology this year, uh, 2020. And it's by Christian Thorogood, me, and Jenica Webster. And um, yeah, uh, it was a long, long time to get this uh, published. Uh, It's been a work in progress now for four years, five years, um, from the time we started the project until when it came out. So it's been quite a while that we've been working on it. But Mm -hmm. I actually think it came out at a time when uh, people are looking for information about How do you um, disrupt a status quo in order to achieve greater social justice? And -hmm. like, what does that look like? And why is that important? So um, I actually think even though it took a really long time to complete, that it came out at a time period where it's actually particularly useful.
0: Yeah, I, I think it makes sense. I agree. It's definitely kind of top of mind type of topic at this point. Um, So that's great. And I think it's really good when we talk about your articles to give people kind of a reminder as to how long this process takes. So, you know, when we say something's hot off the press, it wasn't an (laughs) idea that came up like two months ago and now there's a published article. Um, You know, it takes so much time to get the research done. Well, first to get the research approved, then to get it done, then to get it written up, then to get, you know, reviewers like giving you feedback and addressing their feedback and all of that stuff. There's so many steps in the process. Um, So it does take a long time to get research out and published and in the hands of, well, academics mostly. Yeah. Or us when we're going to talk about the podcast. Um, (laughs) But it does take a lot of time. So, you know, some, there's some topic areas which you probably have heard throughout podcast um there are some areas where maybe research is a little bit lagging in terms of trends that are happening externally um because it just takes a lot to do that research so if like a brand new technology comes out for example or people are seeing this with covid right brand new virus now we don't know anything we have to start from scratch and it takes a long time to actually get any information to understand things
1: yeah yeah and so yeah it's it's like By the time the papers come out, the researchers have been thinking about these ideas for a while. And that's also part of why a lot of research might seem like uh, it comes out like after or like well after it's needed. Um, Or in this instance, I think that people are thinking a lot about this topic, but it's only because like researchers have been thinking about it before the public was thinking about it so heavily that it actually ends up coming out at a timely time. Um, otherwise uh, it was something like COVID, like you're always going to have more rigorous research lagging with the public need because there was no way to anticipate that mm-hmm. this could be something of importance, right. Or that this would be needed. So like right now for COVID research, they're doing these like rapid review papers where uh, they go through the review process a lot more quickly and they're having to sort of, Relax some of the standards for how perfect the data has to be, and uh, you know how many studies you need to have, and um, all that kind of stuff. Because if they use their regular standards for letting articles in, it'll take too long. Like we need stuff faster, so they're actually creating like quicker avenues to get work published in order to address that, which just kind of speaks to the length of time that it takes in general.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, it's great they're doing that so we can get some information out there. I'll be curious to see. Um, so here comes like dork talk, but <laughs> I'll be curious <laughs> to see, like, you know, how doing this expedited review process is going to impact longer term research. So, like, if somebody's then doing a little bit of a longer term study on this time period, are we going to find something different um, yeah. when we have, quote, more ideal or perfect, not really ever perfect, but perfect data versus what they're relaxing on a little bit now. Um, right. And I wonder if it's, I mean, it'll be interesting what lessons we learn, right? Is it that sometimes we get too caught up in the review process that like we need mm-hmm. to let go and think about data differently? Or are we going to find that actually this incredible rigor is very important? And I think it's going to vary from field to field too. Like our field will yeah. be different than other fields as well.
1: And I think... um there's also been like just a lot of things um, like it's not that while I'm saying they're relaxing the standards, like, for example, the JAP um, Journal of Applied Psychology special issue for COVID, they got over 300 submissions and they only accepted five. Whoa. So it's still they're <laughs> still they're still applying fairly rigorous standards, but it's just that they wouldn't accept five out of 300 under normal circumstances so quickly. Yeah. And the five that they accepted probably don't have the same, they can't expect the same, like we'll go back and get more data and more data and more data. Cause everything's coming out um, like more, just so much more quickly. But mm-hmm. what people have done that's smart is that they've used archival data. So like um, the first paper that got published in the special issue for COVID, somebody looked at the gender of the governors of different states Mm -hmm. And saw whether or not it was related to COVID, like, uh, mask wearing percentages and death rates and, uh, like, early, um, like, early, uh, uh, like, adherence to staying indoors and things like that. And they also, like, coded all their public statements for, like, various emotional words. And they found that, like, female governors, I think it was, like, were more compassionate and emphasize like um, collective agency. Like we have to do this together as a team mm-hmm. in their messages, which like then led to more adherence to uh, the the um, rules and regulations. And that was even controlling for political party. So like that was like that was smart because that's really cool data, but it's kind of pu- it's publicly available. Right. So like yeah. they didn't have to go get new stuff. So anyway, that's how they're getting around some of it. But blah, blah. It takes a long time. This paper took a while.
0: <laughs> yes. Well, I think at some point it'll be interesting if we pull some of those um, COVID articles and share them. Yeah. Here. So we can do that at some point. But in the meantime, I think a lot of people can learn some really good stuff from what your paper says. So let's talk about your paper.
1: Yeah. So our paper basically looked at a very specific type of allyship behavior. Um, so we're sort of thinking of it as like under the umbrella of everything that you might do that could be considered allyship, whether that's allyship that you perceive as effective or allyship that other people actually perceive as effective or both. Um, We've looked a little bit in the literature at what do people need to do in order to be effective as allies from the perspective of a minority group. Um, But we don't know a ton and most of the literature has basically looked at very acute events like Um, I witness someone being discriminated against and I have to make a decision whether I'm going to confront the person who's discriminating against somebody else in that instance. So there's like a literature on confrontation and there's some stuff about like if you're going to confront someone about um, biased behavior, what's the best way to do it and what kind of tone should you use and should you directly call out the behavior or should you indirectly call out the behavior? So there's sort of some about um, how do you create um, greater acceptance for the fact that the act that you're calling out was wrong? And how do you maintain that people like you? Um, So in the prior literature, we know a lot more about like, I see something and I have to jump in right away, um, or I have to decide to jump in right away. And we also know A little bit about how people react to that, but mostly how the general public reacts to it. So it's more Mm -hmm. been like, how do other bystanders react? Not so much about how does the minority group member that you are acting on behalf of respond to that. So we know less about that. Mm
0: -hmm. Interesting. Um,
1: Yeah. And so what we were interested in was, okay, there are... We needed to hone in on a specific subset of allyship behaviors just for purposes of definition um, and we became interested in this idea of courage um, oppositional courage because courage is a fairly new construct in the literature and oppositional courage in particular is the idea that you are sort of uh, pushing up against a norm within an organization or within society um, and that you are trying to challenge some form of inequity um, in doing that so oppositional courage is broadly can be anything that's a challenging behavior at work um it could be something like you know that like fraud is happening and you challenge that um and stand up for that or you know something unethical is happening and you stand up against it but in our specific study we're talking about courageous acts that oppose non-inclusive norms or behaviors towards stigmatized groups at work so the important thing with regard to the subset of sort of what we're looking at from an allyship perspective is it has to uh Be risky. You have to have. uh, You have to be pushing against an existing something Mm -hmm. in order for it to count as oppositional courage. So we focus there because we don't know a lot about courage. We don't know a lot about allyship in general. Is basically what I'm trying to say. And then we had to hone in definitionally on what are we interested in within within the allyship realm. And uh, we chose to focus on courage because we don't know a lot about that, even in
0: relation to not knowing a lot about allyship in general. Mm -hmm. Okay. So let me. Back up for a second. So as you're talking about these types of courage behaviors related to allyship and how it's an opposition of something else like that's existing Mm -hmm. within the workplace, do you have examples of what those types of things could be? Like if I am an ally and I'm doing this, what does it look like? What am I doing? Where am I doing it? How am I doing it?
1: Yeah. So that's a really good question. Um, The literature as it existed when we started the paper did not define what oppositional courage would look like uh, with regard to standing up for uh, stigmatized group members in the workplace. So that was actually something we had to answer with our study. So we were interested in the idea of oppositional courage, and there was sort of a definition of oppositional courage, but no one had looked at it with regard to uh, stigma or standing up for stigmatized groups. So um, the answer to that question really is answered in some of the findings that we have. So our very first study that we did was that we basically asked, uh, we picked uh, transgender employees because we've built a lot of um, connections with the LGBT community over the course of our research. But also because there's a really high base rate, unfortunately, of discrimination that's faced by transgender employees. And mm-hmm. so we wanted to ensure that when we were asking these kinds of questions that we were going to find a lot of variability and a lot of opportunity for people to have experienced um other individuals uh standing up for their rights in risky environments and so in order for there to be like a higher number a higher amount of risky environments out there we had to pick a group that's more likely to be in a situation where they're facing more discrimination where the norm would be against them as opposed to for them uh in a higher frequency um so we asked in our first study we had 158 transgender um individuals who um We collected data from um, and basically we asked them to recall whether they had witnessed in the last six to nine months a courageous act of a cisgender or a non-transgender employee who took on significant risks or threats to challenge powerful organizational members or to challenge the status quo in order to uh, fix unfairness, disrespect or harm towards trans people. Mm-hmm. So we asked them first, like, have you ever witnessed something like this? And then if they said yes, we asked them to tell us about that event and in detail. And then we also asked them how the courageous event made them feel about themselves, about their work environment, about the person involved um, and about the circumstances that they were in moving forward. Um, so we gathered a bunch of these incidences uh, from participants, and it turns out that there are sort of three main buckets of behavior that people reported as falling within the realm of oppositional courage. Okay. Um, and those are advocating, defending, and educating. So defending is kind of similar to the um, confrontation idea that, we, that I talked about before, where I see something or somebody sees something, like someone's directly uh, saying or doing something to make me feel um, left out. And somebody is jumping in. Um, so one example from our work is this person says, uh, my assistant Judy spoke out when I was being treated poorly by one of the managers. It was brief, but vocal, almost mom-like. It came about as I sat at a lunch table in an empty chair. And when this coworker saw this person sitting there, he jumped up like he had sat next to a very large spider. Um, so basically saw that this person was sitting there and then jumped up like scared and uh, the assistant said, uh, Scott, that was so rude. Scott, that was so rude two times. Um, and the person says, this is when most people were not speaking or making eye contact with me. It was very painful. And uh, her saying that brought me to this island of relief. And I'm always grateful that someone said something. Aww. Um, so there's. Uh, that's an example of defending. It's like an acute thing that happens and the person jumped in to try to relieve the pain that the person was feeling by calling out the behavior um, head on. Um, But what was uncovered that's unique in our study beyond the defending piece, which is really the only thing that we know about allyship, is this advocating and educating piece. So the educating piece are things like... um, helping people to understand uh better policies and practices, helping people to understand things like pr- correct pronoun usage, um having uh colleagues uh who uh talk to other colleagues about trans-related issues and why they're why it's important to create trans-inclusive environments in the workplace. So, um, That's the idea of educating. Um, So this person says, like, my manager corrects anyone who gets my pronouns wrong and informs them on the proper way to use them. And most recently, they went out of their way to explain the importance of trans-inclusive policy to a group of high-level individuals within the organization. Um, And then advocating is the last piece. This is basically... um, trying to ensure that the structures and systems within the organization actually support inclusivity. So this person says the leader of my LGBT group has worked with me to get trans inclusive healthcare. And we sat through a number of very uncomfortable meetings with administrators, but she was really persistent and firm in advocating for our rights. So, um, So those are sort of the three components of oppositional courage. Um, Educating, advocating, and defending. But they only count as oppositional courage if you're pushing up against a norm. So if I go to Berkeley and I'm like talking to people about pronoun usage, that might not count as risky behavior because (laughs) the norm in an environment like that is probably one that would support me doing that. Um, And in fact, there may be uh, positive benefits that I get. I may be selfishly, Attempting to get attention by virtue signaling in that environment. That's a whole other literature. Um, By basically showing like, hey, I'm woke up. So it could end up being more about me in an environment where you're rewarded for that kind of behavior. This is specifically like I'm taking a risk to, uh, to advocate for, defend, or educate
0: others. Okay. So that makes sense. So this is all about I am in a situation where trans individuals within the organization are either not having the same rights facing some sort of discrimination having people you know behave badly I mean discrimination still but you know behave badly towards them there's something going on or the policies aren't as inclusive like I don't know some sort of leave policies or whatever um And I am pushing up against that as the ally. And that's when I have that oppositional courage. So I am either helping somebody learn more about um, how to behave maybe more appropriately or, you know, what they should be doing. I am advocating for changes in the systems. Um, And then I'm also maybe I'm, yes, defending standing up for somebody that's being treated badly or talked down to or whatever. Yep, you got it. Okay. Um, so that's the idea, and that's what we
1: found in our first study was sort of, okay, what are these behaviors? Could, because they hadn't been defined in the literature so far. Mm-hmm. And we also found some evidence in that study that um, when people uh, experience these behaviors, when we asked them, how did that make you feel, or how did that make you feel about the person, um, we found a lot of evidence that these messages, these, these acts seem to send a message of value that the person... Um, felt like they mattered within the workplace more as a result of those actions. Um, So there's this quote uh, from uh, this uh, trans woman that was in our sample. I appeared in a dress for the first time at a company party. One of the housekeeping aides grabbed my hand and pulled me on the dance floor in front of everyone. His courage in accepting who I was in front of all of our coworkers can bring me to tears this day. So... That, that person was clearly saying, like, I didn't feel accepted. That that quote is quite truncated from the full story that this person shared. But, like, um, basically they were feeling really left out and lonely at the party because they had showed up and they felt like um, they had made a bad choice to show up uh, in, in a dress. That people in the company maybe weren't ready for it. They were feeling a little bit ostracized. And when the housekeeping aide grabbed her hand and pulled her on the dance floor in front of everyone um that really uh, made her realize that there were people in the workplace that cared about her feelings. Um so that so that led us to start to think about okay, what's what is this related to then? So if these acts of courage are sending some kind of a message of value, um what does that look like or what's the outcome of these kinds of behaviors? Um A couple of things that the reviewers actually had us do so after we had submitted this for initial review uh the reviewers had a question about well is it just the act or is it that is it just that people like to be supported or is there actually something about taking a risk that's important so does it matter if I'm doing something that's risky or if I'm just doing something supportive and Mm -hmm. so we ran this lab study where we had uh uh, 102 transgender individuals read through this vignette where a person tells her boss that she's going to be transitioning uh, from male to female and that uh, she'd like his support. And in uh, one vignette, it's clear that the organization already has a pretty supportive culture. And we said that the manager was really supportive and advocated to make sure that you know um, the transition was successful and made sure that she was treated fairly in the process. In another, it's clear that the organization was not um, favorable towards the, those conditions, and uh, he still did the same thing. And then there was a condition where uh, the person just uh, didn't take any action. Uh, that was the control condition. And what we found was actually that the risky condition um, created the highest level of um, of what were, what's called organizational-based self-esteem, which is what uh, we're arguing is the direct uh, result of of witnessing acts of oppositional courage that I feel better about myself as a member of this organization when I witness those things and what we found is that when trans people read the scenario that had risk they did feel higher OBS-y, um than if they read the one where the same action but it wasn't risky so there is something about taking a risk that sends people a message that they're even more valuable than just support by itself.
0: Okay, and OBSE is that organizational-based self-esteem. Yes. I know we've talked about that before, um, I think in another podcast. I don't even remember. We'll definitely link, I'll find where we talked about it before and I'll link to it. But do you want to kind of define that a little bit more in terms of yeah. what that would look like?
1: So organizational-based self-esteem is basically the idea that you feel like you're valuable or that you matter at work. Um, so what we're arguing is, and this and I don't want to get like too far into it because there's a lot going on in this paper. But um, but basically we're using this uh, sociometer theory, which basically says that human beings really want to belong. And because we really want to belong, all of us all day long are kind of tracking the extent to which we belong in social environments. And so we're kind of looking for and responding to social cues over the course of our day, day that tell us whether we have value uh, to others within our department, within our, um, our workplaces or within our society or within our families or friend groups. Um, and if we f- feel that the signals we're getting tell us that we have value, our self-esteem goes up. But if the signals we're sending that, the signals we're getting say that we don't have value our self-esteem goes down mm-hmm. and so because we're talking about a workplace um a workplace setting we're talking specifically about the extent to which you feel that you have value at work which is organizational based self-esteem
0: okay see perfect I think that was helpful just to kind of get a refresher on that um but it makes sense right you're if you feel like you're valued at work um, it's obviously very important for your wellness, but also it makes sense that your theory around this courage piece can lead to you feeling more valued at work because someone is willing to take a risk for you.
1: Yeah, yeah, and so uh, the idea is that you know when uh, trans employees witness these acts of oppositional courage, it says, okay, like you're saying, um, I must be valuable here because otherwise, a person wouldn't a person wouldn't put themselves on the line unless they really felt that I had something of value to offer to them or to the workplace in general. Um, So I matter here is basically the message that they're sent. And so when we measured that after people read the vignettes, we found that the vignette with the risk created higher OBSC than the vignette without risk. So I feel like I matter even more when I realize that people are willing to take risks uh, to defend, advocate, or educate um, around my identity. So – the moving forward from that so we kind of have established that okay oppositional courage is, is a thing it exists in the way that we thought it would in these three dimensions and then um, we know that it matters that risk the riskiness is actually a real thing that actually makes a difference in uh, OBSC. From there, we actually created a measure of oppositional courage. So that was a whole separate study that probably is not as much of interest here. But if anyone is interested in pulling the paper, you can actually measure this within your workplace. Um, And so we created a, we did a scale development within the study and also now have an oppositional courage measure um, that we created as part of the study. So um, with these three dimensions, so uh, items like... uh, I've publicly advocated for the rights of transgender employees. You can tweak this for any group. Um, Petitioning organizational leaders for more inclusive policies, challenging policies that are discriminatory, speaking out for the rights of transgender employees at personal risk, protecting them from hostility or judgment, defending people who are treated unfairly, confronting prejudice behavior, taking career risks, Uh, opening myself up to criticism to educate others and putting jobs or social relationships on the line to spread knowledge and understanding. Um, So that's our measure. So now we have a measure of oppositional courage, which is kind of (laughs) cool.
0: That is fun. Um, So for all of you listening and thinking about all the work that Katina put into this paper, (laughs) like there's, you know, that's, that takes a lot of work just to create a scale and to get all the data behind it. Um, But from a study perspective so we often talk about like oh items like x item like uh, items like y for each of the different things that were measured i mean it's important for people to develop this stuff so that we can use it and then continue to measure the same things when you're looking at multiple studies so then like the next person that's going to study oppositional courage can use the scale that katina and team created um so that now we know when they're measuring something it's the same thing that was measured in this study so we can understand that construct, right? We can understand oppositional courage better as a whole because now we're measuring the same thing. We're talking about the same thing and we're able to see what are all the different relationships with that thing. Yes. Yep, that's perfect. Um and that's and and it's cool
1: because uh now we can start a new body of research around oppositional courage and like you're saying have consistency in it um which is the name of the game so that we're all talking about the same thing. Um so now the final like Uh, Kind of, okay, what are we doing with all this stuff? Um, So our final uh, study basically used our new measure to say, okay, so what? Like what does this do on a broader scale? So we had the lab study that showed that reading about someone taking a risk um, was uh, more impactful on organizational-based self-esteem than not having a risk. But now we're going to use like a field sample of employees And we're going to uh, actually measure this at multiple time points. So we have a two-time point study um, where we uh, had 177 transgender employees um, fill out uh, our study variables, which um, were oppositional courage. um, And then we wanted to look at its impact on organizational-based self-esteem. And then we also wanted to look at uh, how that impacted outcomes so we looked at job satisfaction as well as emotional exhaustion. Um, and the final thing that we looked at was, are these acts more important the more strongly rooted you are in the fact that you have this transgender identity? So you could think the same thing about a, a gender identity, like, you know, being a woman writ large. You could think about this as being like a racial identity. So if someone stands up for, for the rights of your group, Um, And you're more firmly rooted in your identity. Does that make that act even more impactful for you? Mm -hmm. So we were interested in that as a moderator as well.
0: Yeah. So that basically you're saying that um, you're looking to see, does this type of courage lead to me as the employee from the minority group having higher self-esteem, feeling valued at my company? And then does it also make me feel... um, Better in terms of I like my job, I'm happy in my job, and less exhausted. So kind of going to the wellness. We've talked about emotional exhaustion a lot. Um, so making sure that you know it's impacting people's well being overall. And then what you're saying. So for context of like a moderator for those of you that don't speak our lingo, <laughs> um, Weird language. Um, basically, what Katina was interested in, and Katina and team were interested in, was. Understanding and correct me if I'm wrong, but understanding whether if I like really feel strongly about being a woman, and that's like very strong to my identity, is that going to have a stronger impact on um, all of those outcomes? I'm going to feel like even better because someone has stood up for me than somebody that maybe doesn't think about their their identity as a woman at all or doesn't care as much about that it's not as big of a deal to them like they don't they're not somebody that's like yeah I'm a woman woohoo versus there might be somebody that's just more like yeah I'm a woman whatever that's like not a big deal to me it's not like part of who I strongly identify as so that's kind of just looking to see like the difference between people that have different identity different strengths of identity or versus you know how much do they actually identify with being that group is that correct yep that's absolutely correct perfect um
1: you got it So, and so to that end, basically what we found was with regard to our base model. So when people witness these acts of oppositional courage, um, and again, this isn't a sample of like 200 something trans employees, um, when they witnessed these acts of oppositional courage, it was positively related to their organizational, uh, based self-esteem at time two. And, Organizational-based self-esteem was related to job satisfaction positively and negatively related to emotional exhaustion. So our base model held basically that when you witness these acts of oppositional courage, it makes you feel like you matter within the organization, which makes your job satisfaction go up and your emotional exhaustion go down. Um, And then with regard to the relationship of identity centrality, we found that at when people have high identity centrality, oppositional courage is related to uh, job satisfaction and emotional exhaustion through OBSE. but at low levels of oppositional courage, that actually the relationship doesn't hold. At low levels of identity centrality, the relationship doesn't hold. So okay. what we basically found was that um, this is important if you care about being a transgender person um Mm -hmm. but if you care less about it it's not as important so oppositional courage is particularly important to individuals who really stake a lot of uh their uh self-worth in that identity
0: Mm -hmm. okay so i think that makes a lot of sense um i know you're so close to this paper i'm gonna do a translation again but (laughs) um so basically what we're seeing is that in general if someone stands up for you or advocates for you or educates other people for your, your group, um, in this case, the trans, um, population of that, that you're studying, but hopefully in theory, this would translate to other groups as well. Um, so if people are standing up for you in a place where it's not okay to do that, you feel like you're valued and therefore you're going to feel happier in your job and less exhausted so higher well-being and then this really matters if you really identify with that group so if I'm a person that's going to pride parades and you know advocating you know being part of a group socially around my identity really doing all those like this just examples but like whatever it is where you're feeling you're obviously it's very important to you that you are trans then that really matters. And having people stand up for you really does have a lot of impact on your outcomes. It really has a lot of impact on how you feel on the job, both from being happy in the job and from not being exhausted. If you don't care as much about your identity, it's like not as big of a deal, not on the forefront all the time, not something you really want to talk about, think about, be part of as much. It's just not as important to you. Then it doesn't matter. Then having someone stand up for you is not necessarily going to be helpful for your wellness. Other things are probably going to be more important.
1: Yes. Um, And I should mention that identity centrality tends to be higher for individuals who feel like their identity is like particularly stigmatized. Like people feel like it's a more important part of who they are because it just... Um, is more relevant or defined more by um, individuals in society. So like we found um, fairly high identity centrality in this uh, particular population, but like the more normative a population is, the lower the identity centrality tends to become over time. Mm -hmm. Um, So with regard to like standing up for trans rights, like, um, you know, while we found some individuals in the study that were lower on identity centrality for whom it mattered less, um, you might not know in a situation whether the person is high or low on identity centrality. It didn't harm people that were low on identity centrality. So... Um If you feel like you understand that it's appropriate for you to intervene in the situation and you feel like you can be helpful in a way that is respectful of the person's needs in that time period, like you don't want to trample all over someone who could stand up for themselves or like do things for self-serving reasons. But if you're, um, you know, well-intended and well-educated about this is a way that I could make a difference and uh, you have thought out how you're going to do that. Um, and you don't have a lot of time to like ask the person, like how important is this to you? Um, you can probably err on the side of thinking that it would probably be of importance as opposed to not. Um, but we do have a whole thing in the paper which got cut a lot in the review process basically saying there is a downside to just like acting, right? Like you don't want to just like stand up for somebody if it's going to make them feel uncomfortable or put them on the spot or like out them to people or whatever the case may be. So um, at the end of the paper, we kind of talk about how like, yeah, our paper shows that these oppositional courage acts Can send really powerful Relational symbols to people And make them feel like They value in their They're valued in their Organization And that has really Positive implications For their attitudes And their well-being But uh, We also don't want to just lay like a broad blanket that basically says everybody should always stand up for people all the time. Um, So now moving forward in our future research or the research we're working on now is like, okay, when does this go wrong? (laughs) So, um, so we're looking at um, when are times that people have been stood up for that they felt it was mishandled or uh, didn't come across the way that sent a message of value, um, what are the downsides of acting if you might not be as in tune with what other people might want you to do, or if people feel like they want to do it themselves. Yeah. Um, so that's a caveat that's at the end of our paper. So I think it's kind of important to just say that like we were thoughtful about, even though our paper's fairly pro, like, yeah, you should stand up for what's right. Um, there's also a caveat to it that there that's not just like a blanket statement.
0: Yeah. I think, I mean, I think that's very, very important. Great thing to call out because a lot of people don't know how to act in certain situations. Um, so think about whether or not you actually know what the right move is. And I think the examples you gave are very good and very important because if the example is include the person in a conversation or, you know, them onto the dance floor when nobody's paying attention to them like those kinds of behaviors are not necessarily um I think they're not riddled with potential to be overly offensive right right um you know making sure that you're doing things and being inclusive and kind and I think that even the the example you gave where you they said that somebody's comment was rude like that Mm -hmm. isn't necessarily that's a that's a pretty small gesture that can have a huge Mm -hmm. impact, but isn't necessarily putting you in a realm if you don't know the best way to react. Um, it's not necessarily putting you in a realm to have to, um, speak to things. So maybe the defending types of behaviors are safer than the, um, educating behaviors if you don't know as much about the group. So I think thinking about who you are, where your comfort level is, what you know, what you understand, before you do any of these things is critical. But I think defending for the most part is probably a safer place to start. Um, But I think, you know, obviously I think there's some cases where if the person's starting to stand up for themselves, don't like go on top of that and be like unnecessarily defensive for their behalf. But, you know, certain things here and there, especially like really exclusive behaviors, like just not including people and not wanting to sit next to people, like things like that. Those I think are pretty easy and generally speaking should be fine.
1: Yeah. And I think that, um, you know, one of the things that came out is that some of the defending behaviors were done after. So like something happened and then the person pulled aside the trans employee and said, Hey, I saw what happened. Would you like me to say something to this person? And they would say yeah that would be great or that would be helpful or whatever. And so like sometimes it didn't it couldn't be like that like there wasn't time, but other times there were um or it was public and so the person felt like oh publicly I can't let this sit cuz then it sends a message to everybody else that it's okay. But if it was like a a three-person conversation and one person says something to the trans person and the other person is there, um in an instance where it's not like a hey, other people saw that and I need to like show people that not everybody in the workplace thinks that that's okay. Um, Pulling aside the trans person afterwards and saying, would you like me to say something to that person? Uh, Because I heard what they just said to you and I didn't appreciate it. Like, so there's a little bit more nuance to it in some of the examples that people gave too that can also help to make it a little bit more collaborative in Mm -hmm. terms of the uh, the solution. Um, We also got pushed by a reviewer. Um, which I, I'm happy now that the reviewer pushed us to do it. We kind of we had to come to a happy medium with them, but this one reviewer was continuing to sort of say throughout the process, like, you know, you keep saying that people need to confront people about their behaviors and that that's something that's gen- generally positive, but like at what point does confronting someone for a behavior that... You know, might be considered non trans friendly, actually make that person defensive and turn off, and they get embarrassed or upset or angry, and then they don't want to continue in a dialogue or it's not an actual teaching moment because they just feel alienated from the conversation. And so, the happy medium that we ended on was to put in the paper that, um, you know, it's tough uh, when you're, for example, like used to. Uh, calling someone at work for years Steve and now you're calling them Sarah and you're used to using he pronouns and now you're using she pronouns like um, you know it can it can just be mentally a little bit difficult to make that shift and so in the paper we sort of say that you know if if that's the case and someone like misgenders someone for example um, calling them out in the moment in a way that is respectful as opposed to like, how dare you, you're a transphobic person, blah, blah, blah. You know, if it really is an honest mistake that someone made, maybe a better approach, right? Than just like going from like zero to 60, like I'm gonna just call this out and make this person feel bad badly because it could be an honest mistake. Um, So the reviewer urged us to kind of add that, that like it's not always about like being like super aggressive towards people about it, but rather like you could take it as a moment to be both like educational and defending in a sense. Um, But that we our happy medium was we also put a phrase in there that basically said, however, if someone continues to make the same mistake over and over again, then that may call for a more serious consideration of what's going on so we kind of said something like we recommend this considered approach but this doesn't mean that we should allow people to repeatedly claim ignorance for acting in non-inclusive ways so that was kind of our negotiation with the reviewer but I do think to that point um it is helpful to know that like uh we're not trying to say that you need to like go around your workplace like vigilante like (laughs) calling people out and making people feel badly about their behaviors um there is a there is, I think, a, a time and a place to really make someone understand that they're doing something really offensive. But people make mistakes in this area. And, um, and if the person's really willing to learn and grow and be inclusive, sometimes the educating piece may overtake the defending piece under certain circumstances.
0: Yeah, I think that makes sense. I mean, I'm even just thinking of the pronoun example you gave. Like if someone says he you can just say literally interrupt and just say the word she and then sometimes people will be like oh and then just continue on like right you know I I'm even thinking of like when people sometimes get names wrong like if you're talking to a client and like I have a client there's a Marlo and a Marla Mm -hmm. um it both identifies female and I have the hardest time with Marlo and Marla which which one yeah and They're both also the same industry client. Like, there's enough similarities between the two of them that I cannot remember. And I have the hardest time. And I've apologized to both of them saying, like, oh, my gosh. Like, I have another client, similar space as you, named Marlo. And so... What often what my uh, CSMs will do, like customer success managers, they'll, if I on the call and I say Marlo, when it's Marla, I'm talking to, they'll be like, Marla, I'm like, ah, Marla, you know, right. like, and then I yeah. correct it and move on. Like, right. that is a very right. simple way to like, to do that and address it. And then obviously the person reacts and gets really angry right. about that and whatever, then that's a whole different story. But it could right. be a very simple way to just jump in, making defending right. the other person while not making a big deal out of it and like when my csm's do that like i'm very grateful that they're doing that because i don't want to be using the wrong name but then the client doesn't have to do it to me right so that's kind of nice to not have the client have to be like hey Patricia, you're getting it wrong again what's wrong with you um so right anyways i think that's a really really good example
1: yeah because you wouldn't want the csm to be like why do you hate marla like you know what i mean (laughs) like that would be like a lot so i think i think that um While this one reviewer, we really did have, like, quite a time with many things in this paper that we had to negotiate with them about, Um, I am, I do think that that was a good call-out that we put something in there about that because we don't want it to come across that we're, like, you know, go around, like, social justice Batman and just try to, like, (laughs) you know. uh, But but we also don't want it to be, you know, we want it to be uh, appropriate. So if something really bad happens, you shouldn't also feel like you have to, like, tippy toe around as long as you feel like that's uh in alignment with what would be most comfortable for the trans employees that are in the workplace as well. But mm-hmm. yeah, so that's the that's the study. That's um that's what we put together and now we're sort of moving forward into okay, what are some of the downsides of what we just said you should do. Um <laughs> and we're really happy mostly and really have to be like grateful to um, Lillian Eby who is the editor um at JAP um but she was also the associate editor on one of our papers and then Vincent Gonzalez Vicente Gonzalez Roma was the associate editor on this paper and um these are the this paper and a, a paper we published in 2017 with um Larry Martinez and Enrica Ruggs and uh Nick Smith um that Christian and I published with those people um that Those are the only two papers on transgender employees ever published in top-tier journals in all of organization science and management. Um, wow. So we're really happy that we're finally starting, that this is finally starting to get some more play in the top-tier journals, but we're also thankful to the associate editors that shepherd the papers through because mm-hmm. um, we can tell that reviewers are not always... Uh, as amenable to these kinds of papers as they are to other kinds of papers that we've submitted. And um, you need like a strong associate editor to um, believe in the importance of having papers that are conducted in these populations in order to uh, help notice when reviewers are negatively reacting to the paper for reasons that aren't about your paper but about the population. So um, I've been really thankful for that.
0: So what you're saying is you need editors with oppositional courage.
1: Yes, you do.
0: (laughs) That's what you need. That is what you need. No, that makes a lot of sense. But yeah, I think this is really great. I think it's good for everyone to understand that these types of behaviors are very helpful when done well to employees that are of these marginalized groups. So if you're able to do something in your organization and help people out, you know, that's going to have a positive impact. And as a leader or manager, I think it's even more critical, right? Because you are somebody that you hopefully they're going to be coming to you with issues and concerns. So showing your support, standing up for your employees um, can be impactful. And obviously you want your employees to be happy in their job. You want them to be well so that they're, you know, not only feeling well, but also performing well. So all those things are really important from a good team management perspective. So as a leader, thinking about how you can do some of these things effectively in situations where you think it's necessary, then please do that. Please think about that. And I also think, um, you know, the advocacy piece, we haven't spent as much time talking about that, but especially as a leader, if you are seeing that policies or things that are in place are not are are not doing your employee justice. You would probably make those arguments anyways, right? If you're a good leader, if you're working with your team, you want to advocate for them in all sorts of ways, getting them the exposure that they want, getting them the opportunities that they need, getting them, you know, the benefits and policies and pay and whatever that you think is appropriate, you're going to be doing those ad- that advocating. So, do the same for fair treatment of these marginalized groups that way you can obviously help them out. Um, from a support perspective, from them feeling like they're valued, but also hopefully get some of these things changed within the organization to make a better organization too. Yeah. A hundred percent. We agree. Fabulous. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. I thought it was very interesting. Um, We'll definitely link to the article in our show notes. Um, You had an HBR article come out about this, didn't you? Yeah. Yep. Okay. So we'll link to that too. So if you want to see what Harvard Business Review said about this, well, what you, you guys wrote about this in that paper, um, that will be available for you as well. Thank you so much for everyone listening. We would love to hear from you too. Love to hear what you thought about this topic. If you have any questions about research and I know we dive. We dove in quite a bit today in terms of some of the background of the research, um, more than normal. So we'd love to hear your thoughts, your questions. You can reach out to us at contact at You can find us on our website, workerbeing.com, and on social. So we're on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at WorkerBeing. Thanks for listening. The WorkerBeing podcast is hosted by us, Patricia Grabar and Katina Sawyer, and produced by Allie Johnson. Thank mm-hmm. you.